You can open your Bibles to Psalm 4, Psalm chapter 4, and we are continuing in this series, Living Beyond the Muck. Now, just to kind of frame this series, we're saying that we're living beyond the muck because life has vicissitudes, meaning there are ups and downs, and yes, normal seasons of life. There, there's just a, a lot that happens in the midst of life, and how do you navigate that well? Well, the book of Psalms tells us that we do that with prayer. Now, this is a very special book for many reasons. One, because we read about all kinds of different life dynamics. But another reason is that we get to hear about what causes the king to stay up at night and pray, King David. You may be familiar with the line from William Shakespeare's play, Henry IV, probably the most famous statement in the play. The king says in the play, uneasy lies the head that wears the crown. And uh, this sentiment with leadership is very common. Now, the king in the play, of course, he's at like a low point. He's sick. He's tired. He's feeling the weight of being the ruler. But you hear the same sentiment from other leaders in other positions of authority. Uh, I was looking at an interview from 2016 from Tim Cook, who was five years past the transition of Steve Jobs being the CEO of Apple. And they were asked, asking him what it was like, and he was being very candid in the interview, and he said, well, it's lonely. It's lonely. Now, loneliness comes about for many reasons, and I want to suggest this morning that loneliness is more of a feeling than it is a state of being. Okay, to be alone, we would call that isolation, but loneliness, we can say that someone is in a crowded room and yet they feel lonely, and there's a particular form of loneliness that comes with leadership. We have a saying around it. We say, it's lonely at the top. And I believe that's how David's feeling in Psalm chapter 4. And I think there's a very specific reason for this. So let me read the psalm and tell me if you can see it. Psalm chapter 4. To the choir master with stringed instruments, a psalm of David. Answer me when I call, O God of my righteousness, you have given me relief when I was in distress. Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. O men, how long shall my honor be turned into shame? How long will you love vain words and seek after lies? But know that the Lord has set apart the godly for himself. The Lord hears when I call to him. Be angry and do not sin. Ponder in your own hearts on your beds and be silent. Offer right sacrifices and put your trust in the Lord. There are many who say, who will show us some good? Lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord. You have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and wine abound. In peace, I will both lie down and sleep for you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. Okay, you heard the psalm. Do you think you got what his circumstance was? Anybody? 
Here's what I think, all right? You ready? I think that David is dealing with lots and lots of criticism, and he's feeling like the odd man out because Israel is going through a bad economy. It turns out that James Carville in 1992 was right. It's the economy, stupid. And David is feeling singled out as a leader because there is tough economic conditions. Now, we know that with leaders, that when the economy goes down, that there is a corresponding approval rating decline, right, for them. So you can see it in a couple of places in the psalm. If you look first at verses 6 and 7, David mentions grain and wine. And he says, you're looking for these things. When do people go looking for grain and wine? Well, perhaps in the middle of a famine. You know, Israel had uh, a cyclical weather pattern, kind of like we do, where a drought would take place at a certain time of year. We experienced that in August. They would experience this on an annual basis, and if that drought went into the drought went into the growing season, well, then you have what is called a famine, and people are looking for grain and they're looking for wine. You also notice that he speaks to this group, O men, in verse two. Now, this group, I would suggest from the Hebrew, references the wealthy land-owning class, the people of influence. You can almost hear the economic talking points. We hear this in our own news cycles, right? There's pain at the pump right now. Tell me the last time you went to the grocery store, were you paying 15% more today than you were last year? That's not a good thing. And of course, when the pink slips start flowing in an economy, we're all looking in one direction, right? And David has the unfortunate responsibility of being the person that everyone's looking at right now. Uh, I was talking to someone about this psalm yesterday, and he was telling me about a cartoon, a leadership cartoon that he saw recently. And the cartoon had a pillar, and it had a ladder that was climbing up to the top of the pillar, and the pillar, of course, represents that aspiration that people have in leadership. I'm, I'm climbing the ladder. I'm trying to achieve the top. And boy, if I just made it to the top, well, then I would be all set. However, as the cartoon depicts, when the person makes it to the top of the pillar, there is a giant target sitting on top of the pillar. And that's where David's at right now. He's the king of Israel. Everyone is looking at him the oh men, the wealthy landowning class, are making it particularly point, uh, personal because they're saying, well, David's telling us that we should worship God and that if we just worship God, well, God will take care of all of our needs. But we're looking over there at the Moabites and the Philistines and they've got grain and they've got wine flowing. So David is receiving unfair criticism. Now, have you ever received criticism for something that you can't control, something that's beyond your control? Have you ever felt singled out because you're receiving that kind of criticism? What do you do with that? Well, David shows us what he does with it. If you look at verse 1, David says, Answer me when I call, O God, of my righteousness. 
You have given me relief when I was in distress. Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. Last week, we were talking about anxiety in Psalm chapter 3, and, and we noted that we have this tendency when we go through life that we plan before we pray. You've done it. I've done it. We just kind of shoot off in a direction. We start making it happen. We start going forward. That's not the right order of operations. And this week, David is facing criticism, and he's the king of Israel. And guess what he has to do? He has to confront certain people. So perhaps we might be tempted to confront before we pray. Wrong order of operations once again. David is showing us in the psalm that the prayer should always be our first response when we're dealing with difficulty. It starts right there. And he shows us two significant things in this prayer. First, as he talks to God, he reminds himself of God's character. Did you notice that? Oh, God of my righteousness. Now, what does that mean about God? Well, there's two ways that you could take it. And one way you could take it um, that God is, you know, the God of justice and he's in the high court and he's the one that, you know, determines right and wrong in situations. So David is referring to God as God of my righteousness because it doesn't matter what the critics are saying. The only opinion that matters at the end of the day is God's. But the other way that you could take it is that God is righteous because God always does what is right in relationships. So here you picture God as your heavenly father. You picture God as being there for you, as being present, as delivering. When he says that he's going to do something, you can count on him. And I want to suggest that this is the sense that we should read Psalm chapter 4. It's very similar to what Jesus uh, told us about prayer in Matthew chapter 7, when he said, which one of you if his son asks him for bread, we'll give him a stone. Or if he asks for a fish, we'll give him a serpent. If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? You can count on God's character. David also shows us that you can rely on God because God has a record of past faithfulness, right? He says, you have given me relief when I was in distress. Now, when you are in difficult circumstances, where do you kind of normally fall on the spectrum of like, I pray immediately or I try to do like 10 steps and then I start praying? And David is showing us something very important in the text this morning. He's saying you go right to prayer. Why? Because of who God is. Why? Because God has delivered already. He's done things in your life. You can count on him. He's proven it. All of those other things, they might seem appealing. They might seem like they'll get you out of the pickle that you're in. But ultimately, prayer, biblical prayer, is God-centered it's about him. It's about who he is. It's about what he's done. It's not problem-centered. It's not me-centered. As you look at David's prayer, notice with me. 
He declares God's character. He remembers God's mercies. Then he presses the emergency. What he's doing in the text is he's focusing on the tendencies of God. God shows up because God's this kind of God. I know him to be like this. So he prays. But as we move on, that's not all he does. You see, after David prays, then he confronts. You guys like confrontation? Everyone's like, I love it. I look forward to it every day. I, I hope I have one hard conversation today. I'm just looking forward to that hard conversation. You know, there's nothing in us typically that goes looking for conflict. But what I've learned along the way is this. One, everybody experiences conflict at some point or another. Uh, they say that like 85% of people in work environments experience some form of conflict. They say that typically speaking, a manager on a given work week is spending four to six hours of their time dealing with conflict. I remember when I was first stepping into the role as senior pastor, there were certain kind of confrontational conversations that were starting to stack up along the way. And I'm like anyone else, I don't love conflict. So the list started getting bigger and bigger and bigger. But then I started learning this principle, which is that if you avoid conflict, it only ever gets worse. It gets worse. So now I'm sitting here thinking, okay, well, I gotta start working through this. So I read a book. And get this, this is the title of the book, Eat That Frog. Hmm. Now, it's actually a book about efficiency and procrastination, but the analogy is just so helpful. The book is suggesting that all of us, every single day, must eat at least one frog that day. A frog represents something in your world that you really don't feel like doing. <laughs> and here's a news flash: We all have to do things that we don't feel like doing. So what happens if you choose not to eat the frog? Well, that frog keeps eating. <laughs> it eats flies and worms, and over 30 days, 60 days, one year, two years, five years, the frog gets really, really big. And when you finally decide to eat the frog, well, now you've got a mouthful on your hands, don't you? I know what you guys are thinking. That's kind of a gross analogy. <laughs> but let me just say this. When you allow a conflict to fester, that's gross. And it gets really, really bad. So like I said, I don't love confrontation any more than the next person, but I'm willing to have confrontation because I don't believe ultimately that confrontation is about destroying relationships. I believe that confrontation is about preserving relationships. And I believe that that's what David is doing here in this text. He is confronting this class of people who have been leading Israel in the wrong direction. And here's what happens when economies get really, really bad. You got this? People lose perspective. Have you ever lost perspective? I've lost it. Of course I've had. I've seen people that are incredibly mature, incredibly good people, go through periods of temporary insanity. Because guess what? 
They're staring at the muck. They lose perspective. So we could all, you know, take something away from David's advice in these verses. Now notice his first piece of advice. His first piece of advice is to stay faithful. Okay, David knows that the criticism that is being leveled against him because of this bad economy is not ultimately leveled at him. It's leveled at God. He asks two questions to help them build the perspective of faithfulness. First, he asks, how long shall my honor be turned into shame? Now, what is David's honor? I actually don't think it's his reputation. I think it's his office. He is saying, essentially, that my office represents something bigger than me. Now, it makes me think of a story that I heard Simon Sinek tell. He was telling a story of a speech that a former undersecretary gave that he witnessed. The undersecretary is taking center stage in this big conference, and he gets into delivering his first talking points when suddenly he's holding a cup of coffee in his hands, and he looks down at the styrofoam coffee cup, and then he just kind of chuckles and smiles to himself. He says, you know, it's really interesting. Last year, I was the undersecretary, and I spoke at the same conference. They flew me out business class. When I arrived at the airport, someone was there to meet me, and they took me in this really fancy car to my hotel room. Someone had already checked me into the hotel. They handed me my hotel key. I went up to this very, very nice hotel room. When I came back downstairs the next morning after a good night's sleep, someone drove me to the conference center, and then they escorted me back to the green room. And then someone handed me this beautiful ceramic mug, and I drank my coffee from that mug. This year... I am no longer the undersecretary. This year I flew coach. When I got to the airport, I had to hail a taxi to take it to my hotel. No one was there to meet me. I checked myself into the hotel. I got up the morning, I held another taxi, I took it to the conference center. When I went through the doors of the conference center, I had to find my own way to the backstage. I approached a tech and I said to the tech, is there coffee anywhere around here? He pointed me to a coffee machine in the corner of the room. I went over to the coffee machine and I poured myself a cup of coffee in a styrofoam cup. He said, you know, it's not lost on me now. I never deserved a ceramic cup. The ceramic cup wasn't for me. The ceramic cup was for my position. I only ever deserve a styrofoam cup. David is essentially saying the same thing in this text. He's saying God is the one who placed the ceramic cup in my hand, and it is my responsibility before God to lead well this nation and to point your eyes and your direction to the Lord himself. Now, sometimes we, we idolize the ceramic cup. We think, boy, if I was just holding the ceramic cup, my life would be a lot better. We often forget that there's a weight to holding the ceramic cup. It's called responsibility. Hebrews 13, 7 tells us this. Obey your leaders and submit to them, 
For they are keeping watch over your souls as those who have to give an account. That's the ceramic cup. Doubly responsible before the Lord for the leadership decisions they make, for the weight of responsibility that they carry. So what does the author of Hebrews say? Well, let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. The second question that David asks has to do with these leaders, these important people, these influential people developing a theological pragmatism. His question is, how long will you love vain words and seek after lies? Now, the language there is implying that these people are now pursuing false gods. That's vain words that's seeking after lies. So essentially, they've developed a pragmatism. They're jumping off of God's ship, and they're jumping on the ship of the gods of Moab, the gods of the Philistines, the other gods around them. There's a mantra that comes with pragmatism. As long as it works. As long as it works. So as a theological pragmatist, I say things like, well, I follow God as long as it works for me. But what happens when it stops working? You see, there's a tendency, a temptation to equate God's presence with personal benefits. I equate God's presence with personal benefits. Now, David is saying in verse 3, but know that the Lord has set apart the godly for himself. The Lord hears when I call to him. Now, the godly are not those who are faithful to God as long as it's working for them. That's so subjective. Uh, That's putting you in the position of being judge of what works and what doesn't work and all of that kind of stuff. No, the godly are faithful to God because they know him. They have a relationship with him. They know that he's the heavenly father going back to character and past faithfulness. They know that God delivers. So David's saying, stay faithful. Remember who he is. Now his second piece of advice is this, stay silent. Now this is not a piece of advice for those of you who really love to talk. There's other advice for those of you who really love to talk. The scripture tells us with many words come unfortunate words coming out of our mouth, right? That's true. But here, this idea of staying silent has to do more with anger. Look at what he says. Be angry and do not sin. Ponder in your own hearts on your beds and be silent. Offer right sacrifices. Don't go off sacrificing to these Moabite gods. Instead, remain faithful. Put your trust in the Lord. So some of these critics are hotheads. They're angry. David's saying, listen, everyone experiences anger. You experience it, I experience it. The problem is what we do with that anger. And and when you think about what these people are dealing with, when you go through hard times, hard economic times, for example, Say you lose your job. 
say you get into crippling debt. Say you lose certain possessions that you had because you can no longer afford to pay those things. It could be a natural reaction to get angry. So the question is, what do you do with that anger, especially when that anger is directed at God? What do you do with it? Well, David's advice is, stay silent. He's not saying to you and me that you need to stuff your emotions, you, you shouldn't feel anything at all. That's not what he's saying here. No, this is more like mama's advice that she gave us when we were kids. If you don't have anything nice to say, don't say anything at all, right? You remember that advice, mama? That was really good advice. We need to listen to what you said. It makes me think of a story that I read recently about President Harry Truman. He was coming home for Christmas in 1945, and one thing you have to understand about President Truman when he first stepped into office after FDR was that he took on a lot of responsibility. I mean, he's working around the clock to the neglect of his family. So he comes home for Christmas, and as he's walking through the door, these are the first words out of his wife Bess's mouth. I guess you couldn't think of any more reasons to stay away. As far as I'm concerned, you might as well have stayed in Washington. This guy just walked into the marital meat grinder. And they had a very tense conversation and a very awkward Christmas. And he's so frustrated. He goes back to D.C. It's December 27th. And as he's thinking about all he could have said and should have said and would have said, he sits down and he pens the letter where he's going to tell her all of those things. And he wants to make sure it gets there to her quickly. So he sends the letter in the mail, special delivery. Well, the next morning, and let's just pause on that thought for just a second. The next morning. <laughs> oh, boy. How many times have you written that, like, email or sent that text or had that phone call where you're like, boy, oh, I wish I would have slept on that. <laughs> I find in my life that every time... I send it that night versus that morning. Like when it goes out that morning, it's like 50% less emotionally charged or I just don't send it at all. There's nothing wrong with waiting, y'all. Nothing wrong. The next morning, he gets on the phone with his daughter, Margaret. Margaret, I need you to go to the post office and find the postmaster and I need you to find a letter that was sent special delivery to your mother. I'm going to be honest with you, it was an angry letter. I don't want her to read it. I don't want you to read it. So burn it. Burn it. <laughs> That's some great advice. You know, some of the counsel that we receive with respect to anger, even in Christian circles, is that, ah, oh, it's okay if you vent your anger. Just let it all out. Here's what I've found with my anger. My anger is like a fire. And when I vent my anger, well, I am just pumping 
oxygen into the center of the fire. Now, some of you, you might say, well, I feel better when I vent. I don't. Like, I think of more things to say and more things to be mad about. It just intensifies. So what I want to suggest when it comes to anger is instead of just venting it, be circumspect with it. Meaning, don't trust it. Don't expect it to always lead you to do the right thing, say the right thing, even if it's with someone else. In fact, if you're going to talk to someone about what you're angry about, make sure it's someone that's willing to look you in the eye and say you're wrong. Because I'll tell you what, if the person's not willing to say that, they'll get you whipped up more and more and more with your anger. So that's David's advice. Stay faithful, stay silent. And then as we look at verses 6 through 8, David speaks from his heart. He says, there are many who say, who will show us some good? Now, we're reading from the English Standard Version translation, and I don't quite understand why they continued that quote mark all the way past, lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord. I think it should actually end right there at the end of that question. Who will show us some good? end quote right there. Then David starts speaking. Lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord. You have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and wine abound. In peace, I will both lie down and sleep for you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. Now that question, who will show us some good, if we're thinking in economic terms, you have what is called the perma-bears, right? The perma-bears are the people that always expect economic downturn. They're the glass-half-empty people, and then you have the perma-bulls, who are the glass-half-full. They're always expecting the economy to go you know, through the roof and make them all kinds of money. These people are perma-bears. Who will show us some good? And, and, you know, the perma-bears sometimes feel justified in their economic outlook because, you know, they predicted two of the last 25 recessions that they predicted, and they got it right. They say that sometimes, uh, or they say sometimes of these people that even a broken clock is right twice a day, right? Like, they keep predicting negativity, and, of course, negativity at some point comes. That's just how the world works. In my experience, you don't want to be on either end of the spectrum, right? You don't want to be like so pessimistic that you're always looking for the worst, and you don't want to be so optimistic that, of course, you never expect anything to go wrong in the world. But David is telling us in this text that you can be bullish. You just have to be bullish when it comes to God. Notice he says, lift up the light of your face upon us to that highly pessimistic question. Now that is a reference to Numbers chapter 6, the Aaronic blessing. The expectation, of course, from that blessing is that God is going to do good things in your world. Every good gift, as James says, every perfect gift descends down from the Father of lights, from whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. Do you believe that about God? So David, in the midst of this darkness, this economic downturn, is saying that the antidote is not jumping ship, not going to the gods of Moab and the Philistines. It's actually more of God's presence, 
more of God's favor, more of God's protection. It's more of God. That's what you need. He says, you have put more joy in my heart than they have when the the grain and the wine are abounding. Here's what David understood. God's presence is a greater good, in fact, the greatest good, that you can long for. You know why you lose perspective? It's because you start allowing your heart and your emotions to get tethered to finite things, things that can change. You know, a recession, they say, happens about every seven years. So if your heart is tethered to good economic conditions, well, the rug gets pulled out every seven years from under you. It's not the amount of cash that you have. It's not your home. It's not the food in the fridge. It's not the vacation rentals. It's not the second homes. It's not the third and fourth cars. None of those things are ultimately what is best for you. It's God's presence. I heard this old Jewish legend that says that some of the slaves who left Egypt and crossed the Red Sea through the two walls of water walked through that miracle and they still didn't believe that God had performed a miracle. And people are like, well, why is that? And this is what the rabbi's response to that question was. Because they were only looking down, so all they saw was the muck. Hmm. You look down at the muck, you stare at it long enough, you actually start settling for it. And then you start playing in it. And then you start making mud pies. All the while, God's doing all kinds of stuff all around us, and you're never lifting up your head to see what is beyond the muck. Not David. No, David says there's more joy in God's presence than all the grain and wine of the world. He says in verse 8, In peace I will both lie down and sleep, for you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. Do you know what we call what he is describing there? We call that quality of life, a good quality of life. And notice that David is able to experience a good quality of life even though he feels like the odd man out, even though he's receiving criticism, even though he's in the middle of a bad economy. Imagine that. So what do we need to do? Well, here's one piece of advice from your pastor. Turn off the 24-hour news cycle sometimes and pray. Let's do that. Lord, this morning we just give you glory for David's outlook in Psalm 4. Uh, Once again, we learn how to live beyond the muck, and part of that strategy of living beyond the muck is not staring at it, not dwelling in it, but looking up and seeing you, seeing your character and your faithfulness and your goodness. I pray for each of us here this morning, Lord, that 
that we would grow in this respect. Maybe we've lost perspective. Would today be the day that we we regain that perspective? And most of all, Lord, would we see that your presence is the greatest good that we can have in this world? In your name we pray, amen.